Let me invite your attention to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. The word revolution is an appropriate word to use as we look at Jesus and even as we look at the life of the kingdom of God here and manifested through Beach Haven Baptist Church. It's a, an appropriate word for our intentions. That is the word revolution. It implies a dissatisfaction with the way things are. And I think that that is entirely appropriate for us to be dissatisfied with life currently as it is. Not that we are always whining or complaining or cranky or grumpy. God has been good to us. But there's so much more work to do. The word revolution also implies reign and dominion. And that's precisely what we want to see take place in the athens Clark County region. We want to see it take place in us. Are we ready for Jesus Christ to pull off a revolution of His kingdom in this place? Are we ready for the changes it will bring? One comedian said, I haven't got the slightest idea of how to change people. But I keep a long list of prospective candidates in case I find out. <laughs> I've got my list, and on my better days, I'm at the top of it, personally. We have considered, over the last number of months, a proposed vision statement for Beach Haven. And in fellowship and in talking, and with more than 400 face-to-face meetings in the last year, with uh, the church family, and many, many more to come, I have learned something about Beach Haven, and that is the notion and the idea of fulfilling the Great Commission satisfies the heart and soul of Beach Haven. By proposing that we become a global church, where we have global and local mission commitments, and that we win and baptize and train great commissionaries, we've rung a bell together. That's on your heart. Somebody said about good leadership, it doesn't always mean that you create new ideas and get people to follow those ideas. Sometimes it means you find out where the people are and just get in front of them. And that's what we've done with that. At the same time, however, the proposed vision has also created a sense of inadequacy in some. How in the world do we propose to share the gospel with every person in our region? How in the world can I become the kind of disciple that I need to be? How can we ever accomplish these things? How in the world can I ever become an effective witness to others? How can I develop Christ-like character? How in the world can I do that? I am so inadequate, and I've got to say to you, if you feel that way, you're not a lousy Christian. In fact, you're the prime candidate for God to do something in your life if you will trust Him. You are. That's precisely where you want to be. Your spirit, if you feel a sense of inadequacy, your spirit is rightfully creating a sense of dependence on God. And that's what you need. That's what you've got to have. So on one hand, the vision we've talked about has created uh, a, a satisfaction. It has gripped the heart of many, but the next moment it causes half of us to pass out. And that is, I think, a great place to be. I think many of us are ready, but by August, I want us all to be ready. And so in my view, the greatest need that we have is to grow in faith. And I want you to mark it down 
to remember as you read your Bible and watch God work in the lives of people, nothing ever is accomplished that is great for God unless it is accompanied by faith. So I'm proposing in 2015 a year of faith. A year of faith. I want us to build our faith in God. And by the time we are done with this year, I want us to declare, even at the outset, this year I'm going to trust Him. This year I'm going to believe on Him. This year my circumstances and the realities of life and the deficiencies of my life are not going to define who and what I am for Jesus Christ. His promises and His Word and His character are my firm foundation. This year, I will trust Him. So I'm going to begin today preaching through the Gospel of Mark. It is not going to technically be a series of sermons. A series builds one upon the other. Uh, That's not what I'm going to do. Every message is going to be freestanding. And so... That's what we will do until we finish the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, I'd really like for us to take a first step towards that with a Life Commitment Sunday, and that's today. I want you to have this nearby, this insert, this card insert. I want you to put your name at the bottom, and I want you to check the commitments you're making today. They're really just two. The first one has several opportunities. In the spirit of 2 Chronicles 7.14, I will pray at 7.14 every day for one or all of the following, revival, my role in the Great Commission, Beach Haven's future and vision, the Act 22 project, those who need to make a commitment to Christ, and then I'll pray during the worship service a few times a year. For the sake of the Great Commission, also, I surrender my resources, my tithes, and my offerings. And I want you to submit that during the invitation, during that time. If you make all or even just one of these, I want to ask you to give that to us today. Now, in our text today, in Mark chapter 1, we find that God has been silent for 400 years. From the close of the prophet Malachi's ministry until the beginning of this ministry of John the Baptist in Mark 1, God has not sent a prophet in 400 years. Israel has not heard from God since the last verse of the book of Malachi. And when he does speak again, he speaks through John the Baptist. And I want you to look with me at several things concerning John the Baptist. Uh, I want you to look with me in verses uh, 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness." Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. These verses describe John's aim. In the ancient days, a king would travel, and the roads were not in good repair often. Oftentimes, they were full of potholes, and they were littered with trash, and a king and his court would send servants through to clear out the road, to clean it up, to fill up the potholes, to straighten the roads where they needed to be straightened. Sometimes they would make new roads 
for a king to travel on because the hill was too steep or up one way or the decline was too steep coming down the other way. And they wanted an honorable path for the king to travel from one destination to the other. And John the Baptist came to Israel and said, your hearts are like ancient roads. They're full of potholes. There's some trash. And so we need to lower the hills and the mountains. We need to lift up the valleys And we need to clear a way because the king is coming and your heart needs to be ready. And he needs to have a smooth path across your heart. John the Baptist was preparatory for the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so that is his aim. But then there's an announcement in verse 4 and 5. He came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River. And here is the standard that got them into the baptistry that was the Jordan River. They were confessing their sins. Their parents didn't do it for them. They did it for themselves. And having confessed their sins, they got into the river. John was a preacher of repentance. He was the kind of man that if he were to walk in the room frequently, you would say, when he walks into the room, he always looks at us like there's something wrong with us. John was not a pleasant preacher. Listening to him was like listening to someone rip a board off a wall. That's the way John was. And he was the kind to preach repentance. He was shocking. And he demanded something that the Jews had not heard of. Now, the, Jew, the Gentile proselytes that they had won to Judaism knew about this. But John said, I want you to lower yourself to the level of pagans who've just come into the Jewish faith. And I want you to repent, and I want you to go through baptism, immersion in this river just like they did. And that's what I want you to do. You need to humiliate yourself so much that despite your covenant with God as Israel, You need to come as if you'd never known Him. Confess your sins and be baptized and follow Him. And that's God's invitation to you today. And the only way to do that is to come humbly before God. And if you will, God will receive you in Christ if you trust Him. So that's John's announcement that then there's his attire and his appetite. In verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And I wonder if Tony Sizemore may help us some Wednesday evening with this on the menu. He ate locust and wild honey. Well, the honey helped him get down the locust, I'm sure. Not very appetizing, but a lot of protein. But John showed up in camel skin. He showed up in a leather vestment. Now, John was the son of who? Zacharias. And who was his father, Zacharias? He was a priest. John was in the line of the Levitical priesthood. And so John had available to him better clothing and more formal clothing. But Israel was placing their hope like some do today, very satisfied with fine clothing. And yet John appeared in camel's hair. He would annoy those who insist that ministers always wear coats and ties, which I don't insist on that and won't. And he did not always wear his best. That's not a biblical argument. John dismissed it. Instead, he dressed in a way that was a rebuke to those who were satisfied and so narrow that the people had to dress in a certain way for things to be legitimate before God. John annoyed people when he preached, even with how he looked. Now, that's great comfort to me. (laughs) But uh, that's what John did. And this was his attire. 
His clothing was a rebuke. And then here's his attitude, verses 7 and 8. You don't hear many preachers saying things like this, but he preached saying, There comes one after me who's mightier than I. And I'm not even worthy to do what a Gentile slave would do. I'm not worthy to loose the sandal strap on his feet. That was the work of Gentile slaves. And here's why. I'll baptize you with water, which is an external symbol. But he's going to give you the real thing. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And baptism, water baptism, please don't hope in it. It is the first step of obedience, but it doesn't give forgiveness and eternal life. Baptism is an external symbol of an internal reality, and that's why we do it. We cannot see Christ by the Holy Spirit come to live in your life. So you show us in the baptistry, and you've got to be entirely sincere and knowledgeable about what you're doing. That's why we train every person before that person gets into the baptistry on the gospel, salvation, the Christian life, and evangelism. We want them to know what they're doing. And they did. And so John said, Jesus is greater than me. I do have a baptism ministry, but His is far more significant with the Holy Spirit. And then look at John's affirmation, verses 9 through 13. And we'll just read verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee, at least a 40-mile walk, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. John stirred up Judea and Jerusalem and divided the priestly class and religious leaders. And some were for him, some were against him. They were all inquisitive. And eventually, some would speak against him, Jesus revealed in Matthew 22. And in the midst of this great excitement, in the midst of this division, Jesus shows up and takes his stand with John and allows John to baptize him. Because he wanted to be identified with the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, he's doing more than that. He's identifying with sinners as well. Because the water level is here, Jesus was here, and he went under the water and came back up. He formed a cross in the, in the Jordan River and illustrated his burial and his resurrection and is previewing his death, burial, and resurrection at the cross for the whole world is what he's doing here. And in this way, he affirms John. John shows up, and John is a shock to the system of Israel that demanded immediate life-changing change, which we call repentance. He, he was much like that mosquito out at the night when you're sleeping outdoors, camping, who just won't go away. Actually, he's bigger than that. Not a mosquito near your ear, but a pterodactyl. And then John is not only that, but John is also the eyelash in your eye that gets in there and you can't get it out. More than that, he's a telephone pole in your eye. This is what John is, and God sends him to prepare the world for Jesus Christ. And here's the main point. We can prepare ourselves to the movement of Jesus Christ by loving the changes he wants to make in our lives. Well, preacher, don't you know? No one loves change but a wet baby. Well, I would challenge that even. I've had four of them and none of them enjoyed it. But I want to say to you, there is no significant move of God without making the changes God wants us to make, which we call repentance. The Bible calls repentance. If you expect yourself to be in a condition... For the movement of Jesus Christ, 
You've got to hunger and thirst for the changes He wants to make in your life. You've got to swallow the shock. You've got to embrace the shock of it all. And love change as much as God does. And I'm not talking about just any old change. There is, of course, a generation who thinks that anything that came before them is useless and inferior. C.S. Lewis called that in literature chronological snobbery. I'm not into that. I'm talking about the kind of change that God demands and insists on in our lives. If you want Jesus Christ to be real and vital and powerful and to use you in life, you've got to love change that He wants to make in your life. And why should I do that? Well, let me give you a few reasons from the text. One, love change because of Christ's information on us. Christ's information on us. I've read recently an article about the world's worst roads, and one of them happened to be a road Sherry Michelle and I would take to Lake Eufaula in Eufaula, Alabama. We travel about 48 miles on a road that I recall counting 39 crosses where people had died on the road. It's Highway 431 leaving Phoenix City. Actually, it stretches from the Alabama-Tennessee line and uh, goes to, uh, I believe, Dothan. And I recall traveling that road from you followed back to Phoenix City and counting 39 roadside crosses memorializing where someone had died. Poor visibility, uh, strange changes in the road pattern, have caused people to die frequently and often on that road. And what the text is tailored to teach us this morning is that our roads are not a new super highway. They are one of the worst roads in America. And Jesus knows that. Christ knows the struggle that we face to walk with Him. If you find yourself having to repent and repent often, if you find yourself having to make changes and to stir your heart and renew your walk with Jesus, let me say to you, that doesn't mean you're a lousy Christian. It means that you're still breathing. And you will do that if you follow Jesus for the rest of your life. That's just part of the human condition. Now one day, thank God, Jesus is going to release us from that. In the last few days, He's released some of our dear friends from that. And soon, I think, probably a few others. But one day, that's coming to an end. But in this life, we have the heartbreaking reality that our hearts are prone to wonder and to leave the God we love. He knows that. And so Jesus Christ is constantly pressing change in our lives. And if you want Jesus Christ to have a smooth ride in your life, you're going to have to love change because He knows who we are. It would help us to know who we are as well. So you can experience more of Jesus when you love change. So love change because of Christ's information on us, but second, love change because of Christ's preparation for us. Verses 1, 2, and 3 are remarkable. Mark combines, uh, 3 and John the Baptist in many ways, combines three different verses from the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, Exodus 20 who will prepare your way before you, Malachi 3, 1. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make us pass straight. Isaiah 40, verse 3. John thought entirely in biblical categories. So John appears in the first century of, uh, or excuse me, uh, some uh, 30 years after Jesus' birth, around A.D. 28. 
He appears preaching in the wilderness, and he is the manifestation of a plan God announced 14 centuries, 9 centuries, and 4 centuries before he ever showed up. Malachi came around in the 400s BC, Isaiah, the 800s or so, maybe 900, and then Exodus 23 records events from the 1400s when Moses wrote of them. What a remarkable thing. In other words, when God sent John the Baptist, he was implementing a plan he had formulated and announced centuries before, formulated in eternity past. Listen to me. God calls you to change, and you need to trust Him for many reasons, one of which is this. God never does anything spontaneously. God never does anything last minute. Hey, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? God has never discovered anything. God has never had a eureka moment or an aha moment. Everything God wants to do in your life, He had prepared before the foundation of the world. And now, the burden of the ages is upon you now. Because God wants to do a work in your life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9, and 10 say, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. So we're not saved by our works. We're not our own work. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should do them. In other words, the change that God wants to make in your life is something He's already prepared for. He's got the table set. He's ready to go. He's waiting on you. You're waiting on Him. You're backing up. You need to come to Him and say yes to Him for any change He wants to make in your life because of His preparation for you. When you change then, you conform to the eternal plan of a flawless, prepared master. So, love change because of Christ's preparation for us. But there's a third reason. Love change because of Christ's liberation of us. Do you have any debts? Do you have a mortgage? Wouldn't it be wonderful the next time you sent in your mortgage payment, your mortgage company returned it to you and said, your balance has been paid. That'd be a lovely thing on credit cards, especially in January. That'd be a lovely thing on car notes and leases. What if the one holding your debt returned your check back to you and said, it's all canceled, it's all paid? Do you know what we would say then, we could say about your debt? It had been remitted. And that's the word that is used here. In chapter 1, verse number 4, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, unto the remission of sins. In other words, uh, God is willing to look at the debt that you owe Him because of your sin and cancel it. Now, it's not that someone gets off scot-free because his son would die. He's the one that would pay it all. But the truth is, is that when you come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, God takes this enormous burden of your debt to His court. All the legal fees, the sentence that's been leveled against you, and remits it and cancels it when you come to Jesus Christ. 
This is a God who wants to do that. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you not appreciate that? Are you not grateful for what your friend has done for you? What about the wounds that your friend has endured for you to remit these sins? What about his thorns that injured and wounded his brow? What about the nails that pierced his hands and his feet? Your friend did this for you. Is there no feeling for your friend today? Is there no overflow of gratitude for what he did for you? Oh, I fear when we can't crank someone up to worship with this great worship ministry, when we can't get someone to run and rush towards change, despite their trembling and their fear, we've got to wonder, and I think we're justified in wondering if there's any forgiveness at all. Forgiveness produces a love for Him. And without that, there's good reason to question whether we've met Him at all. Now, I want to clarify. You do not get forgiven by improving your life. Not at all. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. That not of yourself. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because He loves us. It's the forgiveness that comes first, and by the power of forgiveness, He produces change. Is what He does. So love Him, or love change, because of His information on us, preparation for us, liberation of us. But there's a fourth thing. Love change because of Christ's obligation to us. Now, I've got to make it real clear to you. I'm not calling you, and more, God is not calling you to be popular. God is not calling you to be approved. In fact, if you yield yourself to Him and begin making the changes that Jesus Christ is calling you to make, you may forfeit all of those. Like Kelvin Cochran, the Atlanta fire chief, you may actually jeopardize your employment. This is not easy. Jesus did not say, take up your cross and follow me daily for nothing. He didn't. You may forfeit approval. You may forfeit professional reputation. You may forfeit friends. You have to understand that. It reminds me of Tom Carson, an ordinary pastor in Quebec, Canada. His son wrote about him, D.A. Carson, about how in the early days of his ministry there, the Baptist folk were persecuted. In fact, some other religious group that operates under the guise of being Christian would gather their children, the priest would, to pick up rocks and throw them at the Baptist pastors there. And one day he went into a home that was to become a church building for his small fledgling flock. He walked in and members were there. They got wind that children in the neighborhood from this religious group were going to throw rocks at him when he left. And they urged him to leave out the back and he said, No, I walked through the front door, I am leaving through the front door. And that's precisely what He did. And that's what Jesus Christ wants you to do. He wants you to have the boldness and the love for Him to stand publicly for Him. How can you do it? Tom Carson said the Lord walked with Him. 
the Lord Jesus was with him. And D.A. Carson said sometimes as a boy, he could hear his father in his study, his humble study in his humble home, praying for 45 minutes at a time, mumbling with words he couldn't quite understand, but he sought the face of God. And I want to tell you, dear friend, whenever you stand for Christ in change, Jesus Christ will stand with you. He will take personal responsibility with you, and that's what he did with John. John is in prison. He was never invited to one of Herod's feasts, but he sure was put into one of Herod's prisons. And they behead us today, not with the old gory type, but with more finesse, Vance Abner said. But John was in the prison. And Jesus said, of all the men born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist in Matthew 11. None greater. And there's nothing John could do for him. In fact, again, Jesus publicly identified with him at John's worst moment when John could do him no favors and when, frankly, identification with John the Baptist could get him in trouble with the authorities. And I want to say to you, when you stand for the change Jesus Christ wants to make in you, Jesus Christ will stand for you. In fact, Andrew Murray put it this way. He said, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life totally yielded to him. God is willing today and now to assume full responsibility for you, to place underneath you everlasting arms, to give you insight into His Word and answers to prayer and the Holy Spirit's power to accomplish the will of God. You can love, change, and experience a great movement of Jesus Christ. So have you changed for Him? And do you love the changes He wants to make in your life? If not, I want to say to you, he's willing today to take responsibility for that grievous sin. In fact, Jesus Christ is willing, watch this, to take responsibility for all of your sins. Jesus is willing to stand before the Father and say, I appear before you today, O King, in this court, as if I am guilty for those sins. That's precisely what he did at the cross. When he bled there, He said to the court and judicial system of heaven and his father, these are my sins and I take them to myself. I'm willing to take responsibility. He who knew no sin, what? Became sin for us. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He's not only willing to take responsibility for your Christian life, he's willing to take responsibility and identify with your sinful life as He is the one who is guilty. And then, thank God, in this court system, God allows an exchange. He's willing to say, I stand as if I am guilty of sin so that you can take responsibility for His purity and obedience. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And God the Father today is willing to look at you through Christ as if you had performed all the obedience and righteous acts of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a gracious God! For those whose hearts are humbled and broken because of sin, glory to His name that He is willing to exchange lives with us. Is your heart humbled today? Are you willing to trust Him and Him alone for this salvation? He'll take you. He wants you. 
He calls you. He thinks about you. He cares for you. And He's urging you now to come to Him. Father, I want to pray that friends would do that today. I pray they'd say yes. I pray they would trust that great exchange that took place at the cross and in the resurrection. Would you make it happen today? Right where you're seated, why don't you take your poor broken heart and your shame and turn it over to the Lord? Look, Look away now from your sins. And look to His love and grace and His cross. Would you do that? Don't linger any longer. But look to Him. Look to me all the ends of the earth and be ye saved. Is His invitation to you now. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will not be ashamed. He promises. Would you call on him? Now I'm going to ask everyone to continue pray to pray. I'm going to ask them to pray for you. But if you just called on the Lord, we want to help you. I'm going to ask everyone to remain seated for right now. Staff are going to stand here. And I'm going to ask you to come and tell them your spiritual need. If you just turn to the Lord, would you come? We're not going to stand and sing at this moment. We will a little bit later. But would you come? Say yes to Him. Share with us your spiritual need. And we want to help you. God bless you. Folks, we'll move out of the way if you need to come out of the pew. That's okay. Don't let that hinder you. You come. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Would you take the Life Commitment Sunday card, please? And look at it with me. In the spirit of 2 Chronicles 7.14, I will pray at 7.14 each day. Would you check whatever you're committed to praying to? And then the final item, for the sake of the Great Commission, I surrender my resources, my tithes, and my offerings. If that applies to you, would you please check that if you're making that commitment today? Here's what we're going to do. 
I'm going to ask you to stand. Tim's going to begin singing. Choir's going to help him. And just as soon as he does, I want to ask you to come and lay this commitment card on the altar. Would you do that symbolizing you're laying that commitment on the altar to God? Stand quickly with me. Tim, lead us to sing. And you come.